The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about the making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy, and most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with legendary director Peter Jackson about his documentary, The Beatles Get Back. If you haven't heard, this is a documentary about the Beatles, 1969, recording what would become the Let It Be soundtrack. And you may have seen some of this footage before in the movie Let It Be, but you will not have seen it the way Peter shows it here. He's found a way, as he did in they Shall Not Grow Old, to take this less-than-ideal film stock and make it beautiful and revelatory. He also shows much, much more of the process of the creation of the album from the early days when the director, Michael Lindsay Hogg, had dreams of staging a outdoor night torch-lit extravaganza in a Roman Colosseum in Libya, uh, to what ultimately became a rooftop concert above the Apple offices. This film is, frankly, at points, boring, but it's a sublime sort of boring. As John says at one point, speaking of the film crew, today we're focusing on legs and toast. And there is a lot of legs and toast, but you're constantly reminded that the young men who are working so diligently sometimes and fooling around other times are, in fact, the Beatles and are creating what in effect is their final album. Peter Jackson, of course, is known for the Lord of the Rings cycle, the Hobbit cycle, and Kong. But if you haven't seen some of his earlier work or haven't seen it in a while, I recommend you go back and take a look. I would especially recommend the film he made with Kate Winslet in 1994, Heavenly Creatures. It's possible that some of the attention to social niceties, to the power dynamics that can attend even close relationships. Maybe these themes that are clear in the Get Back documentary, that those themes are even more explicitly and attentively explored in his early films as they are in his later epics. But however that may be, you should definitely check out this documentary. The, the series itself was nominated for an Emmy. Peter Jackson was nominated for directing. Jabez Olson, who Peter mentions repeatedly in our conversation, was nominated for editing, and the film was nominated for sound editing and sound mixing as well. Again, as always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod, all one word, TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Peter Jackson about The Beatles, Get Back. Hi, Peter. Hi, Michael. It's nice to be here to chat. You've had a very long, very successful career as a narrative fiction filmmaker, from Heavenly Creatures to the Lord of the Ring cycle. So recently, you've directed two documentaries. What's drawing you to this particular form at this particular point in your career? 
It's a couple of things really unrelated, but as it turned out, they were both related. I mean, I've always had an interest in the First World War ever since I was a kid because my grandfather fought with the British Army. I mean, I never met him because he was long since dead before I was born, but Dad used to talk about him and his father and stuff. And so I grew up with the First World War being a thing, and I've maintained an interest in it my entire life, really. So when the Imperial War Museum in London asked me, it was the beginning of the centenary of the First World War, 14 to 18. I know the Americans came in a bit late in in 17, but most of the rest of the world, it was 14, 18. And they had money to commission various sort of artists or various people to do events. And so they asked me if I would like to do a film, taking their archive, their original film archive, because they've got the biggest, I think they've got the world's biggest archive of First World War film, a million feet of film or something. I remember the meeting, they said, could you use our original archive film in a fresh and original way? And all I was thinking of is, God, I've seen so many docos on the First World War my entire life. How on earth do you be fresh and original with old jerky black and white film? How how do you do that? But I I said to them, what say we make it look like it was shot on 35 mil yesterday in a colour and it projected on an IMAX screen with sound. I don't think they knew quite what I was talking about, but that's the direction I took. So that's that's about 2014 because it didn't get released till till 18, till the end of the till the end of the war. But the other thing, which is a bit more personal, is that Andrew Lesney was my DP that I worked with on Lord of the Rings and Kong. I mean, everything really for the last 15 odd years. And I'm an only child, and Andrew was the closest thing that I've ever had to a brother, and we developed a real shorthand. And yet Andrew died, he had a heart attack suddenly. It was about a year after The Hobbit, or two years, and I really had no desire, no stomach to make a film with a different DP at, at that point. So... It was like the Imperial War Museum off- offered me a way out because the DPs that I was going to work with were these poor guys that were in the war in the trenches, keeping their heads down, cr- cranking a hand crank camera. So that sort of helped me get through Andrew- Andrew's passing too. And you brought a lot of those techniques. I don't know if you brought those same techniques, but you brought that film to life. And here too, I think the murky 16 millimeter film we remember of the Beatles sessions from 1969 you really have done something here. And I first caught it when Michael Lindsay Hogg, the original director, appears. Mm-hmm. He, he lights a cigar and the shadow on his face and his skin, <laughs> his hair. I sat up like, whoa, where am I? Yeah. What did, what were some of the techniques you used? In a sense, one goes into the next because, I mean, most of the techniques that were used on Get Back were actually developed for They Shall Not Grow Old. Um, with a different menu of things, if you like, because obviously Get Back was a colour and They Shall Not Grow Old was black and white. And uh, and Get Back wasn't quite as jumpy and jerky as, and it wasn't hand-cranked either. <laughs> either. So the, it was actually easier. Get Back was easier compared to the, the three or four years we just spent on the First World War. But there wasn't a lot we did in restoring the picture of Get Back that we hadn't in one way or another sort of touched on where they shall not grow old. And I guess we were also lucky in the sense that this vault of film or this collection of film, it was 16 mil neg and it had never been screened. I mean, it was it literally sat in the Beatles vaults, Apple Corps vault for 52 years. And so even though it was 52 years old and the 16 mil stocks in 1969 were quite as nice, the dynamic range wasn't quite as good, good as you get now, but it was still, it was pristine. It had never been used. So there was not a single scratch. There was no frames that hadn't snapped and had to be joined back. It was just, it was pristine. So we were fortunate with that. But the sound, you know, whereas They Shall Not Grow Old was really picture focused, even though obviously it had a soundtrack. Get Back really, I, and it took me by surprise because I was thinking, okay, we're going to restore the picture. But the Nagra recordings that we had to work with, almost all the sound we had was Nagra. 
apart from a few eight-track tapes that Lynn Johns did record at the Savile Row studio, and we got access to those too. And the story really is that Get Back took Jack Jabers, my actor, and I about four years to edit. And in the last year or two, we had a sound team coming in behind us too. And for three of those years, we were just dealing with the Nagra sound. And, and a lot of our editorial choices were being made because there were lines that we could hear if we really played it three or four times. You know, there was noise and we thought, God, that would be great. We can use that line, but we couldn't because it was too noisy. And so we spent three years making editorial choices, partly on the quality of the sound, because you want people to understand what's being said. And then a year before the end, we've got this incredibly clever team in New Zealand who developed this. Um, I mean, it's the whole demixing idea is not new, but very early on, we tried commercial software for demixing, and it wasn't giving us any results that were any good. So we had our guys actually write their own code for it. It wasn't even a year, it was about eight months before the end before Thanksgiving, the results were coming in and it was unbelievable. Like these conversations that we had, you know, two two years earlier, as we were cutting and discarding these scenes, we suddenly put through the program and it was coming back crystal clear. It was slightly frustrating. I mean, it was, it was hugely exciting to suddenly for all these voices that had been lost or buried to come up. But it was also frustrating because it happened in the last eight months. I wish we had that from day one. One of the big, in fact, relentless themes of Get Back is nostalgia. The Beatles are constantly pulled back to the past. They play the old songs. They reminisce. They talk about the Hamburg days and even the birth of the band. It really made me even rethink that first 10-minute piece. It's just a history of the Beatles, which I thought, well, this isn't for me. I know that. But you actually set up the stakes and the themes. But you also, in some ways, what I'm getting a sense is this is their minds. This is They're always thinking about where they came from. Well, of course they are, yeah. Now, 1969, so their Hamburg, their last trip was 1962 to Hamburg. So you're talking about seven years ago. So what were we doing over seven years ago? It's not that long ago. Seven years ago, I was finishing up They Shall Not Grow Old. I was about to meet Apple to talk about Get Back. It hadn't quite happened yet. You know, seven years is not a long time. And yet, because it's the Beatles, we associate them with Shea Stadium and Help and A Hard Day's Night. And this talk about Hamburg seems to be in the dim, foggy past. But for them, it's... It's not, you know, it's not. I really enjoyed the way that the Beatles were sort of aficionados of their own past. It was cute, actually. It was really cute. I didn't expect so much discussion about Hamburg. And there's a bit that I love where George Martin is in Savile Row and George Martin is trying to help them with feedback loop to get in because the speakers and the microphones aren't in quite the right place. And Paul McCartney starts to lecture George Martin about the uh, top uh, t- uh, or a 10 club, that the sound in the top 10 club was fantastic. It was great. And you can just see that George Martin, the last thing he wants to hear about is the sound in the German nightclub be- being great. You know, he doesn't need to he- hear that. <laughs> you, can, you can just see his face. It's, it's, um, it's quite funny. One of the most discussed scenes from this film is this moment where the titular song Get Back comes into being. You know, it's seemingly mindless, kind of McCartney's strumming his bass and it comes to life. I think there's a lot of artistry on your side here, on you and your team's side. I'm certain what we're seeing is an artful distillation of a longer process. And I love the way you mix like straight on shots with some overhead shots and even distant shots. John comes in and you have a very high shot to show him come in. It's almost like Ringo kind of teleports from sitting in front of Paul right over to the drum kit. Can you talk oh. about how you, and oh, by the way, the music behind it is constantly propelling us forward. Can you talk about how you it's, it's, not that, it's not that much of a cut down. I mean, there's no point really having Paul sort of dream up, get back on the spot. If you're going to take three hours of noodling and trim it down to a three minute section. I can't remember quite how long it is in the finished cut, but we've got all the rushes. The, the rushes would only be about a minute longer. Literally the bit where Ringo gets up 
and takes his coat off and goes to the drums and he gets his cup of tea and he has a sip of tea and then he picks up his sticks and then he starts to play. So we cut to the beat of Get Back. We cut it from the moment that Ringo was sitting there. We, we had to get Ringo up on the drums because that's where he is, except he spends the early part of that scene, you know, with George on the rostrum. So we just used the cut of the music. And by the time Ringo moves, Paul's already pretty much nailed this song anyway. And so we lost about 45 seconds, I would think. And I, I was trying to be careful too. I was trying to be as accurate, truthful, all those words are get grey when it comes to documentaries and things, especially when you've got to cut 60 hours and down. And another case was um, Billy Preston. When Billy Preston arrived to say hi and they say, sit there and start playing. You know, I said to Jabez, I said, look, Billy's here. They're going to start playing. He's going to start playing. I said, we absolutely must. The first take that we see Billy doing has to be the first take, that we can't have six takes of Billy and we use take seven, making people feel that that was his first go. So what you see in the movie was his first take. So there were certainly moments where we stopped and made sure that we were being as historically accurate as we could at certain key times like that. So when you see Billy sitting down playing for the first time he is literally playing for the first time so think things like that little bits like that were important you wouldn't want to cheat that stuff too much but on the other hand you've got 60 hours you've got 130 hours of audio you see because part of the problem with with, with what happened in 1969 it's not actually a, a problem particularly thank god michael shot all that stuff but the, the Niagara recordist was pretty much rolling most of the day i mean every 16 minutes they had a change of tapes but obviously a Niagara six 16 minutes quarter inch tape even back then i'm sure it was pretty cheap but the film stock wasn't cheap so what you essentially have is you've got two timelines so the key timeline is, is the niagara sound so there's about 130 or 40 hours of that which is most you know 80 percent of every day that the sound was recorded so you've got a pretty good indication of what happened each day and so we had that on the avid we had the niagara track there as our base and then you, and we had a black screen and we're listening to the sound and then um, the editorial guys did it great for us because, you know, if there was no picture, the screen was black and then suddenly, boom, the A camera's on. And so now we've got a picture and the Niagara is still continuing and, and the A camera might roll for seven seconds and then, boom, off, cut. And then there's 30 seconds of just the sound. And then you might get the B camera might button on, button off for four seconds, but the A camera might come back on again for 30 seconds. The entire 21 days, I mean, the rooftop was the big exception where that was covered very, very well. But most of the time, we had about a third of the amount of picture as compared to the audio. And, and the story of, the, of that month is the audio. The picture is fine, it's nice, but the actual plot, you know, their conversations about what's going on is that 130, 140 hours of audio. So there was obviously a lot of times that there was audio that we wanted to use that, that didn't get filmed. The cameras were there, but the guys, they just weren't rolling, presumably because they'd been given a hard word not to shoot too much film. One of those moments where there's no video is this really interesting conversation between Paul and John after George has left, departed rather abruptly. They don't know they're being recorded. And Paul says something very interesting. He says, you've always been the boss and I'm the second boss. And that's it doesn't seem right at that point. Maybe that was true in the old days with kind of a snarling alpha dog, E. John, and an eager puppy dog, Paul. But now it seems like Paul's arranging a lot of the songs. He's also handling a lot of the business decisions. 
Has the baton been passed in some ways? I think John was always the leader of that band. Any way you cut it, he had the authority. He had the, you know, the sort of the gravitas to be in. I don't think John ever gave up leadership of the band. Now, certainly there were moments when he was distracted. There were moments when he was chemically um, involved in other things. And Paul was obviously picking up the slack. But it was always John's band. I mean, he began the band and I think he always considered. So I, so I think when Paul's saying, you know, you're always the boss, I'm a sort of secondary boss. And I think that that's fundamentally true. But, you know, being a boss is different to being the guy bringing the songs in each day or <laughs> arranging the, the music. If you look at the Beatles history, the baton changes on Revolver. Up, up to Revolver, John writes most of the songs. Like, I think, I think A Hard Day's Night has only got one, one or two Paul songs on it. I think most of them are John's. Uh, you get to Revolver, and it's pretty much 50-50. And then Sgt. Pepper, the next album, it's a heavily Paul weighted album and that sort of its revolver is the time that Paul you know if, if, if it matters which it doesn't really but Paul took over more of the dominant role in composing the songs and the music along these lines creative process is very interesting where Paul's often trying to push things forward we need a schedule we should try to get something that done every day and John often seems to be a little bit like adding a lot of chaos in some cases, you know, singing crazy lyrics and so forth. And I wonder if that kind of dialectic between structure and movement forward and chaos is really important to the creative process for them. I think what you have to do is to, um, is you do, even though it's obvious, you've got to split the first 10 days at Twi Twickenham from the Savile Row because Twickenham, you know, was a film studio and they weren't intending to record there. It was a rehearsal space that Dennis O'Dell had got it under contract for the Magic Christian. So in a sense, the Beatles went in there because the bill was being paid by the Magic Christian. And Twickenham was also being considered for the venue for the concert, because it's also the stage where they did the Hey Jude promo about three or four months earlier. From what I can tell in my eavesdropping on their old conversations, they were really thinking of an album-length version of the Hey Jude promo. They'd sit in the middle of this big stage They'd start playing and the audience would come in and surround them as they did on a Hey, hey Jude. And that would be pretty much what the show was. And that was the only time that they were intending to record anything. George Martin and Glenn Johns were going to record the show that they were performing for this audience. And the live recording would be on sale within days. The show would be on TV. And Michael was shooting this behind the scenes stuff to set out the show. When you're a recording group, and goodness knows, they've just come off the White Album, they've come off Magical Mystery Tour, they've come off intense recordings, Sergeant Pepper, and suddenly they're in this big barn and nobody's saying, take one, take two. There's not the drive because you only really, when, when you hear somebody say, okay, we're rolling, take one, that really sharpens you up. And they weren't getting that. It was just meandering rehearsals. And John, that was the period really where he was a bit under the influence of various substances during the first few days. I mean, I'm sure he cleaned up in several row. He sort of changes. He becomes a different guy. So when George left and they had those discussions that we don't get to see because they weren't filmed, the agreement was we're going to carry on with Get Back. We're going to continue with the ethos of Get Back, which is it's a live performance. It's no overdubs, no backward tracks. However, we're going to do it in a recording studio and we're going to roll tape and we're going to record the album. So the album became not just one performance to an audience. The album became, we'll record this track on this day, we'll do the next track on the next day. It was like the album became two weeks work in a recording studio. So the discipline that you get from the rehearsal space to the actual Glyn Johns has an eight track machine. He's rolling tape. They know he's rolling and there's a professional thing that kicks in. That really does make a big difference. And you see that John is actually enjoying himself. I, I don't know whether this is true, but 
I get the feeling that John was not in the least bit interested in this get back project in the first few days. And then George leaves and they have this little three or four day shutdown period. John's also got to clean himself up a bit too. And he knows it. I get the feeling that John came to Savile Row with a whole different mindset. And he realized that he left Paul swinging in the wind a bit. He was not helping Paul particularly. And so he arrives at Savile Row and much more engaged, much more part of the team. And being John, he's extremely funny. I mean, I didn't expect him to be quite so funny, but he's, he's very, very funny. You can see that he's not doing a bit of cameras. He's a clown. He, he, he's literally a clown who can't stop himself. You know, it's really, really great. There had been a plan to have a live show. And as the film unfolds, the options for that live performance get narrower and narrower from Michael's off-repeated suggestion of torchlight in an ancient Roman amphitheater to Primrose Hill to possibly nothing. And then you have this moment. It's really very well done. And this is very much a structure mode, I'd suggest, is we see a pensive Paul and then Michael and Glenn approach him. And we see Glenn, I think, points upwards and it's very goes to slow-mo, smile breaks out, and you have these great interspersed, very understated title cards telling us what's going on. Can you talk about this? It really feels like a revelation. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, you're right in the sense that it's a cinematic moment, but it's not fake. Paul was in a bad state that morning. John was really saying, look, we, we get the idea, this was your gig, it was going to be a show and all that, but it's just not now. You've, got to, you've just got to give it up. You know, and Paul is a bit depressed about that. So really at that point, John and George are both basically telling Paul, look, we're doing the album, we'll record these songs, there ain't going to be a show, it just can't happen now, so give up the idea of a show, just forget about it. And Paul certainly does go into his himself a bit, he gets a bit depressed. Now we can pretty much keep track of the time of the actual clock because of the timestamps on the set mag uh, tracks that we had from Apple and stuff. So that, that happened just before lunch, that bit where Paul getting depressed was just before lunch. What's funny is that before I saw that film, I spoke to Glenn Johns, I spoke to Michael Lindsay Hogg, and they both claimed that the rooftop was their idea. I said, well, who, whose idea was it to go up on the roof? And Glenn says, uh, oh, it was mine. And Michael separately says, oh, it was mine. So I had this dilemma, yeah, thinking because these are two guys who I respect enormously are both claiming the idea of the rooftop. And then we, we watched the rushes. And sure enough, they both kneel down to Paul and they're both talking to Paul. And so I, I said, well, yeah, that looks like they both talked to him about the idea. Michael says that he's, he'd spoken to Glenn about the idea the day before. And Michael, I've got no, no doubt that's probably true. But they, anyway, when it came to pitching it to Paul, they both did it and they point up at the roof. What's crazily annoying is that the audio, that the, the, um, Nagra, the Nagra tape runs out just as they kneel down to talk to Paul, the tape's gone. And so we've only got silent film. Just at that moment, the tape, because with the technology that we ended up having, whatever they are saying to Paul, we could have extracted that and made that clear, but there's nothing, it's silent, it's some silent film. But you do get the pointing up and you get that, that smile on Paul's face, that huge grin. Now, what happens then in the continuity is that the very next bit of film, the very next bit of film after that, but where they talk to Paul and he smiles, the very next bit of film is, is a him climbing up on the roof. So we know that that must have been the roof uh, because the very next bit of film is they're scouting it out. So even though it's mute and the tape ran out, it has to be the moment that they suggested the idea to Paul because he's scrambling up on that roof with it within seconds, you know. I assume that was your cut, but you're saying it was right there. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 And you know what the other weird thing is with that? I mean, I, I don't know whether I'm talking about, I'm just going into Beetle Geek land. Is it what I also find weird, and I can't quite work out the psychology of it, is that while Paul is in that depressed state and Glenn and Michael are talking to him and stuff. John's just playing 
I Lost My Little Girl. I Lost My Little Girl, which is Paul McCartney's first ever song that Paul wrote when he was... When, I mean, he actually wrote that song before, before he even met John. And yet, for some reason, when Paul's in that, in that depressed state, what song does John start playing? It's Paul's first song. And I, I wonder whether that was John reading Paul's upset, trying to cheer him, cheer him up. That's a great insight. Very curious. And when they finally do get show up on the roof, this is probably some of what people have seen before. And I think it's really interesting what you choose to do with it. You interlace some wonderful scenes with the poor constable who's set to halt this due to the complaints of the neighbors. Can you talk about your focus at this point and why you chose that particular focus? The irony is that the rooftop was the very first scene that we cut. When uh, Jabez and I got the footage, we uh, took it from England to New Zealand, which was great. So we had it all to ourselves. We looked at it several times, and then we were going to go back to London to have meetings and also to talk to some of the pe people involved, just to chat with them. And I said to Jabez, wouldn't it be great if we had a cut scene? Because Apple knew that the editing was going to take several years. But wouldn't it be great if we can surprise them with a cut sequence? And so Jabez says, OK, well, what should we do? Because we only had about a week before we had to get on a plane. And I said, the rooftop, let's cut, let's cut the roof, rooftop. And it was like, it sounded like a crazy idea, but what the editorial department in New Zealand did, which was fantastic, is that they, because the rooftop was shot with 10 cameras, the first time I saw the rushes, I looked at camera number one all the way through for 40, 40, 45 minutes. Then you get to the end, then you go to camera number two and you're back at the start again and you look at that. It's, there's no way, it's not a very good way to look at the rushes. So we got our editorial team to prepare a version where it had 10 squares on the screen and each square was a particular camera, A, B, C, D. You know, there was six on the roof, three on the street, one across the road up on the roof and then the, the hidden, hidden one. And so what the editorial team did, which, which was fantastic, was as they, every time one of the cameras turned on, the little square went on and then when that camera turned off, it went off. So at times the screen had six or seven cameras all running at the same time. At times it had no cameras running when they all had to stop and reload, which happened two or three times. And so it was actually viewing the rooftop in that form, which was really just done so we knew what, what um, angles we had. Jabez and I were talking and saying, God, isn't it great that we can see it with all of the uh, cameras? And, and that was when the idea first came. It was a fluke. I mean, I, I wish I could claim that it wasn't, but it was a fluke that, you know, the multi-screen. And then but it became very easy to cut it too, because you were essentially shooting like a live TV multicam sports thing where we had 10, 10 cameras going and you could just about jump from one to the next and then put three up and then take one, one off and put two up. So it was fun. And We'd spent a week cutting that, and then we went off to England and surprised Apple with it. And Sean Lennon saw it straight away. Paul McCartney saw it pretty quickly. Ringo saw it. Yeah, Olivia saw it about five times. I mean, you know, suddenly this was a real thing. This was actually happening. And we didn't really, to be honest with you, we never really went back and revisited the rooftop much. We, I think we went back and did, you know, solid tweaks. But we were also, we did a very strict rule that Michael had the 10 cameras. And, and they rolled like that because that's the day that he got cameras with a 1,000-foot mags instead of the 400-foot mags, which are only, you know, eight, nine minutes of film. The cameras on the rooftop, the majority of them had 1,000-foot mags. So he was just rolling a lot of film. Jabez and I decided that we were not going to cheat. So in other words, when it cuts from the band to somebody in the street, they are talking at exactly the same time as that particular bits are being played. We didn't do any, any of cheats. Once that concert starts, it's real time until the end. There is no, you know, fiddling around or cheating that went, went on. Some people have said, couldn't we just have the rooftop, you know, with the music without the people talking on the street? And we did try that. At some point, we cut all the cops out. We cut all the comments out just to see what it would be like. And it was nowhere near as good. It was all the humour had gone. 
because the only humor is the cops. You know, and you take them away, and it's, and it's not actually funny anymore. And I was sitting there thinking, well, if people want the music without all the all the chat, you can buy it. Let it be. He's got three of the songs. And I also like, you know, this is just me personally. I really love the view into 1969. And I love the fly on the wall aspect. This is the time that they were making Bond movies and the Avengers, all that stuff. But this is not a scripted film. This, these are real people in their real clothes on the street. And the Londoners in 1969 are not quite the same as they are. They were the 1969 Londoners, half of them were from a sort of a Edwardian time. And so I, I thought, well, okay, the Beatles are playing. We're going to cut away from them to some anonymous guy on the street. But that's important because that's part of the social history of the, of the um, film, you know. I love it. It really opens up from that insular world. One of the things that really struck me and made me think that this process was in some ways like making a film that they were going through was the calendar. I love the calendar. I know it's a simple thing. It both gives you a sense of where you are and it creates this tension. Whoa, they got to get this done. And I wonder what creative lessons did you learn from listening to all this, watching all this and working on this film? We had to know what the film was about. I mean, I knew on some level, I knew about the Get Back Sessions because I've been a Beatles fan for 40 years. So I'd read all the books, all of which have quite a inaccurate account of the Get Back Sessions, surprisingly. But still, you've got to have a story. Now, we had a few key decisions that we had to make up front. I mean, the first thing that Jabez and I did is we watched all the rushes. And when I say watch the rushes, you've got to include uh, uh, the audio only bit. So we sort of watched the 130 hours, 70 hours of which was just black screen, 60 hours had picture. And by the time we got to the end of that, and it takes a while to watch um, 130, 140 hours. By the time we got to the end, we went back to the beginning and watched it all over again because we saw it in the in that order. And so when you're hearing some comment that they're making on day three or day four, and you're watching it for the first time, you don't realize that comment that you don't particularly think is important, that actually pays off on day 14 or 15, that remark actually means something. So we had to watch it once through just to know what was there. Then we watched it all over again. And then we we had to make our first decision was, are we going to have narration? Are we going to interview Paul and Ringo and Michael and those people and have them talk about it? Having watched it a couple of times, we were confident that the story could be told with what they actually shot at the time, with the help of a few text cards here and there. Then it became, to me, it became really exciting because it was like this story, if you like, it's a story, it's true life, of course, but this story is being told by the Beatles as it's occurring to them. So it's not Paul sitting down today and telling us what happened back then. We are telling the story through them as they witness it in real time. And that, to me, was far more exciting than the memories, the retrospective memories of anybody. And that was a key decision because, of course, once you make a decision, no narration, no interviews, we're going to have to tell the story with the comments that they're making 52 years ago. That immediately, that really steers your thinking into a particular spot. And that was a very important that we had that made a decision early because it affected the way we cut things. The other decision, which was, seems incredibly obvious in hindsight, is because Apple kept phoning up saying, well, what's the story? What's the story? What's the story? What's the story you're going to tell? And I didn't know what to say because I was watching all the rushes. I said, just give me time to, to watch it all. And then it just became obvious, well, the story is what they experienced. It's what they experienced as they experienced it. And that's where the calendar came in. If you're on the day one, show the calendar day one. If you go to the day, day two, go. So in a way, the most boring form of storytelling, which was day one to day two to day three to day four, that seemed to me, I couldn't think of any other way to tell the story. You could tell it out of order and mix it all up and stuff, but what's the point? I mean, you've got the incredibly rare archive of film, which you can have each day can be told. And so why wouldn't you do that? So then Jabez and I started to edit 
And we knew that each day would have a certain duration. You know, it wasn't fixed. In the finished film, the length of certain days changed all the time. We had no particular plan. But we started, we started on day one. And we spent about a week or two weeks maybe cutting day one. And at the end of that week, day one was like two hours long. And there's 24 days or 20, 22 days. So that's the point in time that we really realized what we're facing now, that we'd cut day one down trying to tell us the story of day one. And then we thought, okay, we'll tell the story of day two, we'll tell the story of day three. But when we finished day one and it was over two hours long, it was like, we're not going to have the luxury of doing that. We're going to have to be a little bit more... Um, but we didn't actually stop that. We edited each day without any thoughts of the things, just to get every day cut. And so we ended up with a 18-hour cut. Around the time the pandemic arrived, or during just the beginning of the pandemic, we had an 18-hour cut. And that was just because we had just simply focused one day to the next, and it put everything in that we thought was important. And then it became a question of trimming it down for the next two years. Yeah, it's a beautiful, monumental film built upon small moments. And I do want to tell you that a number of people told me that not only have they enjoyed the film, but they have learned things about creative decisions, about family dynamics, about work choices. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's yeah. so much here that you can learn from. Yeah, well, I mean, that was my takeaway when I saw The Rushes for the very first time. My first viewing is I just realized that these genius guys are normal, <laughs> are normal, wonderfully normal. Some people aren't normal and they try to try to be normal because it's a cool thing to do. But these are relatively normal Liverpool boys who happen to have an incredible talent. Somehow they found each other in this English town as teenagers. They Four incredible guys just happen to find each other in this one tiny little place. There is a very special vibe to it, but, they, but they're normal. And, and the other comment that I love when I talk to someone who's seen it is, is because I, I kind of feel the same thing. You know, I, I hear people saying, well, I was a huge Beatle fan. I've been a Beatle fan for 20, 20 years, 30 years, and I was really, really, really ner nervous about watching this. But I did, and I'm a bigger fan now, now than I was. Because we're programmed to expect that when the fly-on-the-wall film comes out with the dirty laundries aired, that we're going to see the side of, of whoever it's about, that we're going to see the side that we don't really want to see or we're a bit uncomfortable with. It's going to tarnish, you know, this wonderful image of the Beatles that we've been carrying our entire lives. But, so, I mean, I was really pleased when I got through it. I, you know, I thought, well, you know, these are normal guys. They've got issues. They've each got interests. Sometimes their interests don't line up, but they're nice guys. And, and I keep saying to people, because I was getting asked, what's it like? What's it like? Have you seen it all? And I just said, look, the Beatles are just nice guys. They come across as being just, just nice, which I was really sort about. Because if you've had our heroes for 40 years and you get to see a bit more than the publicity but what you to see then, you know, it's nice that they actually turn, turn out to be de decent guys. Yeah. They really are. And thanks again, Peter. I have to let you go. Really appreciate your time this morning. It was fun. Thank you very much. Take care.